Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Rob, welcome back to the table of the Leadership Drip. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. I've got coffee. So fully caffeinated. The, fully, the, the fully world caffe- is as right. does as does our guest. I see on the screen here, Absolutely. and we will introduce our guest today, Sharon Hottie Miller, author, speaker. She co-pastors with her husband at Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina. So I'm guessing she's a Duke basketball fan. Maybe. Yes. Nodding yes. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Not a maybe. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Cam or crazy. Okay. Yeah. So it's most recently. I like. I tented. I did the whole deal. So you've done the camp, like you've camped out for mm-hmm. tickets. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Uh, I went to Duke undergrad. Oh, okay. So you're all in. All in. You're all in. Okay. Yeah, good. it was. A, I will say it was a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> the camping or the Duke experience? The camping. The Duke okay. experience was awesome. The camping was horrible. Wonderful. wonderful. Probably the only other campus that has something as crazy as that is the University of Kentucky for uh, in Lexington for their March Ma- or Midnight Madness. Those yeah. kids camp for like five days. It's crazy. It's wild. Well, she's a Dukey. But she's also a PhD graduate from Trinity International. Mm-hmm. And off the air before we got started, we were talking about Chicago things. Yeah. But I got to know, this has kind of been a, a question we've ha- had answered a couple times. Yeah. What's your favorite Chicago style pizza, Sharon? Oh, um, that's that's a hard question. It kind of depended on my mood. Oh, okay. Like oh. sometimes... I was craving Giordano's. Oh, yes. And sometimes it was Lou Malnati's because those are like very, is that how you say it? It's been Lou Malnati's. Lou Malnati's Um, because they have very different crusts. Like Lou Malnati's was almost like cakey, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, So, yeah, it kind of depended on like what I was feeling. Yeah. Like Giordano's is like pie. It's like three inches thick and yeah. it's like filled mm-hmm. with cheese. And it's like, and you know how I love pie. <laughs> you know you love pie. <laughs> well, Rob, Rob here, my buddy is yeah. ABD right now That's with right. his PhD process. Yeah. So as a recent graduate, would you just encourage him in the Lord on how he can get finished? <laughs> Oh man, that's a that's like purgatory. Yeah, I'm I'm earning these bags under my eyes now. They yes, they, they yes. can't see them on the show, obviously, but you can see them. These bags are hard earned, as as, as I'm sure that uh, you you can well attest. Where are you working on your degree from? Uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Oh, okay, Georgia. and what's your what's your dissertation going to be on? Or I'm do you know? creating an instrument uh, for assessment of chapels here at Lee University. So basically. I am looking at the redemptive development um, kind of goals and objectives that we have mm-hmm. through our chapel expressions, but we don't have any kind of uh, diagnostic tool to assess that. So I created an instrument uh, to help us accomplish that goal. And so the whole uh, thesis dissertation is the validation of the instrument itself. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully after I'm done, we can make some tweaks and actually implement the instrument for mm-hmm. for better understanding of our of our chapel expressions and experiences so and this and is how long how long have you been working on it or like when did you start your doctoral uh, work 2019 oh you're yeah. doing fine yeah if you had so said like 2000 
Yeah. I would have been like, uh, we're gonna have to have a tough conversation. (laughs) So uh, one of the things I love about the program there is, and this is not an, you know, they're not paying for this endorsement. They're not paying for this endorsement. It's just, Mm -hmm. Um, you simultaneously write your thesis as you go through the, mm-hmm. the coursework, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so we have very strict, hard deadlines to meet certain things, uh, our chapter submissions, et cetera, which, which for me is what I need, because if it's just left to me, mm-hmm. um, I'm a number seven on the Enneagram. Oh, we so already went there. I am all for the pretty things like, oh, distractions. Oh, let's have fun. Yep. So me too. I need those hardcore deadlines. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so are like, you, are you confessing to be an Enneagram seven? I am. Yeah. See now, like three shows ago, that's true. That's I, true. I, we need a, a credit, a correction. Like I need you to retract it. I'm like, not, I'm not going to, because it's about, uh, seven <laughs> he said on a couple of weeks ago like he's like we never have any sevens on the show and like we've had like back like, to back, like back to, to back, back to back sevens and i'm like <laughs> we have sevens all the time just believe me we have sevens as a two i know help me get i'm helping jeff help That's me get more sevens okay Sharon, right. your PhD is in specifically women and calling and mm-hmm. so it's such a unique conversation we have a variety of listeners who have differing takes on theological mm-hmm. understanding of women in ministry Mm-hmm. What did you sort of uncover in your research of, of that topic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I looked at why evangelical women go to the seminary. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was in, interested in that topic is I I knew going into my doctoral program already that that nationally women make up about 30% of MDibs, but at evangelical seminaries it's even less. And mm-hmm. so I was really curious why the evangelical women who did go to seminary, who discerned a call to ministry and thought, I'm going to steward this call by getting theological training, what encouraged them or empowered them to get training when so few of their peers make that same decision? So it was what's called an appreciative inquiry. So instead of looking at like, why aren't women going? I really wanted to look at what is the church doing well to equip women, to empower women, and how can we replicate that? And so what I did is I traveled to a number of different seminaries and I interviewed women and I asked them to tell me their story, to start from the beginning. And I was looking for common denominators in their stories that I could pull out and say, this, this is what is present in every one of these stories or like most of these stories. And then I actually only did my research at complementarian seminaries. Mm. So I, and the reason for that is I didn't want the, I wanted the research to be as universally applicable as possible. And I was concerned that if I was interviewing women at seminaries that, that were egalitarian, that then complementarian seminaries wouldn't use the information and it wasn't driven by an agenda either like i wanted the the point of it was whatever your conviction about women you know whatever your tradition Uh is we can all agree that we are the body of christ and you know in keeping with first corinthians 12 we all have like a part to play in the body and that we should be good stewards of the whole body and so I wanted to interview women at complementarian seminaries where women were not necessarily wanting to be pastors, but they were still being encouraged to serve in ministry and then look for common factors there. And it was a really great project. Like my husband was working on his PhD at the same time. 
and his was in theology and it was on the gospel of John and Karl Barth and his research, basically he had to sit in a library and just read and it sounded like the worst possible scenario. And so also Enneagram seven, <laughs> where, whereas like I'm traveling around the country well, and I'm like talking to people and making new friends and like hearing stories that were inspiring. And it, and it really was inspiring because I felt like I was seeing kind of the next generation of women that God was raising up to serve in the church. So yeah. it was a really cool project. I, I want you to do one quick thing for our listeners. I want you to kind of define complementarian and egalitarian because that's language that we use theologically, but may not be so right. common to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a simple definition would be, I'll try and give a simple definition. Okay. <laughs> the complementarian position believes that men and women complement one another in their the way that God created them. And this primarily plays out in roles, but the, the complementarian position, there's a spectrum where people define what those roles are slightly differently. It tends to, I would say, almost universally mean complementarians don't believe that women can be elders. Mm -hmm. They generally also would say the pastoral role is reserved for men. Uh, where where women can serve beyond that, there tends to be a lot more difference in the complementarian position. Egalitarians, on the other hand, believe that all roles in the church are open to both men and women. It's kind of like the simplest way I would that's explain a, it. Yeah. A good way to put it. Yeah, and that's helpful. That's helpful for um, for our listeners to kind of to wrestle through and wrestle with. So um, so your your research then is on women and calling and learning to cultivate that calling, pursuing higher education to help cultivate that calling. So I think it's kind of a, a really cool question to ask is, how did you cultivate your own calling into ministry? And what was that process like for you as you kind of discovered and thought through and processed what that meant for you and for your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so I'll share with you the three factors that I found in my research among the women I spoke with, the first, the num the first, you know, common denominator that I found in women was they could articulate a sense of calling, which sounds basic, like you did your dissertation and that's what you came up with is <laughs> they all had a sense <laughs> of calling. But I think it's actually worth saying because they, even though everyone had a sense of calling, what that looked like was very, very different. Right. So there were some women who, you know, they had a lot of people in their lives identifying their calling. They were confident in their calling. There was not a lot of angst about their calling. They just kind of stuck right into it. But then there were women that had sort of Jonah stories where they really ran from it for a long time. There were women that had, I would describe it as Abraham stories where they, they followed God, but they did not know where they were going. There were women who were confident. There were women who are not. There were just all, it was all over the place. And so all that to say, calling was a common denominator, but what that calling looked like was really, really different. So that was number one. Number two was, I, this is a broad umbrella category, but a supportive community. So every single woman I spoke to had at least one person, usually multiple, who had named her calling, who had said, I see this in you. Have you thought about ministry? Have you thought about seminary? 
And this was really moving to me because I was interviewing women at complementarian seminaries where their, they, their pastor was not pulling them aside to say, I think you should be a pastor necessarily, but, but saying, I see this in you. And I think you should steward what is a clear call on your life. And the other thing about it that was really touching is how little effort it, it took to really change women's lives. So this one woman told me a story of being in uh, her New Testament class, I think, and her pro- in undergrad and her professor had asked her to stay after class and she stayed back and he said, have you thought about going to seminary after this? And she said, no, you know, why? And he said, well, I- I'm noticing you have a natural gift of understanding of scripture and I really think you should pursue this. And so this took five minutes of this man's time and it changed the entire trajectory of this young woman's life. Yeah. And so that stories like that have really changed me because it, it made me realize this is how God calls leaders is through his church. That, that yeah. this is something that we should all be participating in. That if you see someone who has a gift, it doesn't have to be leadership. It doesn't have to be teaching. It could be mercy. It could be encouragement. It could be wisdom, whatever it is to name that gift. And that is how we as a community help people find what is the spot that, that God created for you in the church. So that, that was really powerful to me. And I, I share lots of times with women and, and young people as well to say, if you're wondering what your spiritual gifts are, if you're wondering where God is calling you, you know, take the gift assessment, all of that, but, but also just ask people who know you, yeah. Like, yeah. like your family, your friends, your pastor, what would they say? Cause I, I actually, I think, um, did you guys have Allie Worthington on here? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Allie, Allie's a good friend. And I was on her podcast like last year, maybe telling this story. And she said, um, she said, Well, I don't have I don't have a story like that. Like I like no one like told me my calling. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Allie, <laughs> <laughs> who who told you to lead Propel? And yeah. she said, Well, Christine Kane took me out to dinner and told me she like saw this in me and that I should yeah. be like the the CEO. And I was like, Allie, you don't just have this story. It came from Christine Kane. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 But we don't, yeah. we, we don't follow those breadcrumbs as as being part of the Holy Spirit. Like we, right. we don't piece it together all the time. And so I would encourage young people to look back and what have you heard again and again? And don't write it off as they're just being nice. Yeah. You know, that is actually how God directs you. It's how he counsels you and guides you. Yeah. Sean so Lovejoy, that was the second thing. Yeah. And I just want to interject really quick. Was it Sean Lovejoy on the show? We had, I think it was Sean Lovejoy who said, you don't discover your, your spiritual gifts by taking a test. Like in the, old, in the New Testament, they didn't find their spiritual gifts with some assessment. It was always found in community, mm. in the body. Mm-hmm. Like it was pointed out by somebody. And I think that's what you're saying here, Sharon, is that, that people come across and go, hey, listen, you're really good at this. And this stands out because sometimes our natural giftedness or what God's put in us is just so easy for us. We don't recognize it as being a gift. We don't, we're like, that's just what I do. It just comes out that way. And we don't realize that other people can't do that. Like that's not what they're gifted at doing. And so I think that's a great point is, is the support of community naming that and calling that out. I think that's great. And I'm excited to hear the third factor 
because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm now I don't have to write my PhD on it. <laughs> yeah. So the third factor was ministry experience that usually there was some sort of experience, whether it was going on a mission trip or if it was leading a small group or it was leading in the children's ministry or some sort of, and Mm -hmm. this was definitely true for me as well, some sort of ministry experience where it was like the light bulb comes on and you realize, oh, I was made for this. And for women specifically, this is important because there aren't that many, in, in more complementarian churches, the opportunities for women to lead are a little bit narrower. They tend to be specifically limited towards children's ministry. And that can be an obstacle for women like me, who are not kid people. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, thinking creatively in complementarian context, or really any church of are we creating ministry experience opportunities for women so that they can identify their gifts and identify their calling in their local church. Yeah. So those, those are the three factors. I think it's a recurring echo that we've had nearly since day one, kind of when we launched the podcast, what, I guess a year and a half ago. But yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a minute, but I think the recurring sort of conversations are these opportunities for young adults, young leaders to lead now mm-hmm. are critical. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Um, and so so sort of the, the the question that Jeff and I started off with is uh, why are young adults leaving the church and how do we get them to stay? Right. That was sort of the thrust behind starting the podcast. And one, this is one of those things that I think constantly shows yeah. itself is don't wait to platform young leaders. And I think especially for young women, I think this is this is a significant conversation to have because in those experiences, we do get the opportunity to not only try and fail and learn, but we also get the, the opportunity to, to cultivate, to grow, to reverse mentor, which right. is what we've talked about a lot on the show. There's a lot of things that we can learn from young women serving in ministry and leadership right now. So, mm-hmm. so I think these are such critical observations um, from your research. And I think yeah. it echoes a lot of what we've been kind of And one of the, the, the buzzwords we use is sweet spot. I think it helps with sweet spot discovery, helping people discover mm-hmm. what their sweet spot is only can happen through experience. Like mm-hmm. you can, you can kind of sense it, but till you try it and do it, I was having a conversation with a young man in your office here, Rob, the other day, who's going in, wants to go into ministry. And I asked him the question, I said, have you ever preached before? And he said, over Christmas break, they gave me, they gave me an opportunity at our church for between pastors. And I said, did you like it? He goes, yeah, I really liked it. <laughs> I'm like, that means that you're called to do that. Like yeah. you recognize that that's in you, that sweet spot. So I think mm-hmm. cultivating these ministry experiences is so important. Sharon, how did how has that served in your calling? What experiences? Who were the voices in your life? And, and when did you sort of articulate this for yourself to to want to be a teacher and preacher of the gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of those factors were present, and it was personally really moving as I was doing that research because it it helped me to look back on my own story with kind of fresh eyes. And the number one person I would say who named my call and was my number one advocate was actually my dad. Both of my parents are supportive, but my dad, he, so I was raised in PCUSA. I wasn't raised in like an evangelical church. And so we had women pastors. It wasn't like a 
I didn't even know that no. was like a debate <laughs> growing no. up, but uh, he would just say, he would say to me, don't let anyone ever tell you, you can't be a leader because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. And he really, and even when I was dating, he would say, make sure you marry a man who appreciates your gifts and isn't threatened by them. Yeah. And so he was that, that early voice. And then I did marry a man who <laughs> appreciated my gifts and wasn't threatened by, by them. And, and that's actually one reason why I am a teaching pastor now is that when we launched our church, I wasn't sure if I was going to take a pastor title at all. I didn't, I was, I felt very open-handed about it, especially because we had just had our third child. Mm. And so we were, my, my, my daughter was eight months old when we launched our church. I was also turning in my second book when we launched our church and I was traveling and speaking. And so I said to him, I, I don't know if I have the bandwidth to take on that that title and all the expectations that would be attached to it and just doing it well. And his response, he kind of honestly used my doctoral work against me. And he said, <laughs> he said, look, you know, we are in the Raleigh Durham area is one of the most highly educated areas in yeah. the nation per capita. There's, we have one of the highest ratios of people with PhDs. Women here are leading in universities, they're professors, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're CEOs, you know, all of that. But because we're in the Bible Belt, you don't see that reflected in a lot of the churches. You do see it in, in more liberal churches, but not more in, in evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think it's really important that you be a role model to women who are leading this area by showing them how to use your leadership gifts for the glory of God. And so he, he challenged me to take on a teaching pastor role. And that limited the scope of my, my role as a pastor, where it was primarily, I'm just going to be teaching and not pastoral care and stuff like that. Yeah. And that was life-changing, honestly, because I, I love it and I love it more. I would rather speak to our church than travel and speak to a, like a conference. I, I really have loved it. So, th so I see that there with, with people naming my call. And then also as recently as the last couple of years where I wouldn't have known how much I would love teaching in a local church con con text regularly until I had actually done it. Yeah. And when I started doing it, it was like it unlocked something inside of me where I thought I didn't realize God created me to do this until I had done it. So those are two ways it's played out in my life. Yeah, that's cool. I, I like I like your particular uh, approach, to not only this conversation, but but to the research in general, because I think here at Lee and, you know, I'm going to speculatively assert um, probably at other similar Christian institutions like ours, there is certainly a surge in young women, not only entering the seminary graduate level, but also at the undergraduate level, religious studies generally, whether it be pastoral ministry, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, miss missiology or whatever, right? Yeah. So whatever the, the uh, topic is or the major is, I think there is an increasing female presence generally in schools of religion across uh, religious institutions, especially here in America. So that being said, do you think, do you, do you chalk that up as just more female empowerment coming from the local church in the home or is, or is, is it, 
Is it God supernaturally moving some things out of the way? Is it all of the above? I would like to just get your opinion, maybe your perspective on why that, why I think that seismic shift is actually happening. Yeah, I, th I think it's probably all of the above. One factor I found that I, in my research that I put underneath community support and it kind of falls underneath that is the importance of role models. Mm -hmm. And this was something that I found. So, so for my dissertation, I had to do precedent literature, it had to be a chapter of my dissertation. And there was no precedent li literature for women in leadership in the church or women going to seminary. So I looked at women in STEM fields and all the work that has been done to encourage women to go into science, technology, engineering, and math. And one really important factor is role models. And so that's why there's been a push to have women teaching math, you know, in high schools, women teaching science, because when you see a woman doing something, it creates a category in your brain of, oh, that means I can do that. Yeah. And for me, and, and this was also a really neat finding from my research, because this was true, for, this was my story, and it was the story of a lot of women I talked to, is the woman that was that for me was Beth Moore. Mm -hmm. And I had grown, I'd grown up in a church, I'd grown up in a Presbyterian church, I'd had female pastors, but I didn't relate to them. Like I never saw myself wearing a robe and a, or a collar or anything like that. And I just, I, it wasn't a category. And so when I transitioned out of that tradition into evangelicalism, I didn't have any category for being a female leader. And then I saw Beth Moore preach at Passion mm. and it changed my life. And I spoke to a number of women who said they were in seminary because of Beth Moore. Mm. And it was fascinating because Beth, didn't finish seminary. She doesn't talk about going to seminary. She, it's not like a soapbox for her at all, but her existence in the world mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> created this. Yeah. And so I think the more you have women leading, the more you will have women leading. We, we, and I, and I say that to, I say that to younger women as well. If, if you, if you wonder if your what you're doing matters, to know that it does for the simple reason that you're creating categories of possibility for the women coming after you. Yeah, we had Beth on the show a few months ago, and that is like a rippling sort of effect of Beth Moore. Like the yeah. people who look to her as a spiritual mom is yeah. unreal. Like we posted everything and like the the comments and the response of Beth being sort of that 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 figure that goes ahead, almost like a John the Baptist kind, yeah. kind of thing. Like she pave the way for so many women to step into callings and gifts and things like that. And we're freed by that was just amazing. Um, we see it also in the conversations we're having with, with other young leaders in Alex Seeley, like who's at the belonging company, who she's sort of paving yeah. the way for young women. Now we're having conversations with and sort of the, her fingerprints are on that. So I think those voices are so important on both sides. Like yeah. there's men in my life who have paved the way and, and led me and there's, but I think we need the Beth Moores of the world, the Alex Seeley's, the, the Sharon Miller's here to, to carve some path and say, you can go into this, you can do this, you can step into a calling. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, Beth was obviously great on the show. No, I think awesome. she's, a, she's a good friend of, of ours here at the school as well. And so I think, I think you know, this, this is kind of the exciting thing because it sort of leads us into this, this next part of the conversation then. Jeff and I are both church planners. We, we, we love uh, the church planning world, and we know that you and your husband 
our church planners, obviously, as well. And so, um, you know, you guys planned the Bright City Church what there. A great name, Bright City. Uh, Bright City, right? I do, too. In 2018, right? Right before the pandemic, right? So as, as uh, you know, wonderfully timed as that is. <laughs> so kind of uh, walk us through um, how you guys have been able to sort of co-pastor and manage and lead um, through what many people would think is one of the most difficult times in American history to actually plant a church somewhere. So what has that experience been like for you guys? Yeah, it's, it's been tough. We, we were listening to, I think it was Carrie Newhoff was interviewing the guy from Exponential. Is it like Todd Wilson? Maybe is that his name? Mm, Todd's the first name is right. Todd's not Wilson. Todd um, something. Yeah, we'll figure it out. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) We'll we'll figure it Um, out later. Yeah, so he was interviewing him about church planting, and he was asking him, who are you most worried? Which church plants are you most worried about? You know, we would think, because one thing Ike and I have said a lot is we feel terrible for the people that are launching, you know, Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And, And so Carrie had said, you know, are you most worried about those churches? And he said, actually, no, I'm not worried about them because they are in the trenches of fundraising. Like this is the most agile you'll be where you're actively fundraising, you know, you're, you're, you're prepared in some, in some ways, like you can pivot in ways that, that you wouldn't expect in that early phase. He said, the churches I'm most worried about are the ones that are planted in 2018, which is the year that we planted. (laughs) And (laughs) the reason he gave is he said at that point, he said, you're not really actively fundraising anymore. And in addition to that, you've used up a lot of the funds that you had raised. Mm -hmm. And so you're in this uniquely vulnerable position and then the pandemic hit. And so we, we listened to that and I can, I just turned to each other and just laughed. We were like, of course, you know, (laughs) but it, it has been, so I'll tell you, my husband and I have responded very differently to the pandemic. And some of this is personality. And some of this is him being the lead pastor and me not some of this is probably me being an Enneagram seven where I'm like, Oh, something new. That sounds really fun. But the reason why we've responded differently, like he, the way he talks about it is before the pandemic, he knew what the goalposts were, you know, we were putting everything into place. We were, you know, walk, headed towards the goalposts. And then when the pandemic came, he said, it, it didn't just feel like the goalposts moved. It felt like I didn't even know where they were anymore. Like they were yeah. hidden. I had the completely opposite response. So I'm, I'm big on discipleship. I'm always beating the drum for discipleship. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I was noticing is that our culture at the time was structured in a way to fundamentally undermine discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so one way that we saw this playing out is every Sunday I would stand at the front, greet people as they came in, greet new people. And the thing I would hear over and over again is I'm looking for community. I want to be in a small group. I want to be connected. I want to be known. And I would say, great, we can get you connected. And then watching them never follow up. Just how that that gap between that need and their willingness to commit was a huge problem. People were simultaneously overcommitted and commitment averse. And so it was really difficult to get people plugged in. We, we also were discovering a lot of research has been done to show that people go to church, churchgoers are going to church on average once a month. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot grow in your faith that way. 
And so I felt really frustrated about how do we disciple people when we can't get their attention, you know? And so I could, I could see the goalposts of discipleship, but it felt like we're running down the field and we're just getting taken out by people's packed schedules or their, you know, priorities. But when the pandemic hit, I felt like the field was completely cleared where people were stuck at home. They were craving connection. They were craving connection with God more. And so to me, I, I thought for the first time since we planted, we have this clear path to the goal and we need to run the ball. And so that's when we actually pivoted really hard towards small groups. So we had, I don't know, maybe like six or seven small groups at the time. And then in a very short period of time, we tripled our number of small groups. Awesome. And I was, I had a lot of oversight on making sure people were in the exact right group and we're small enough that I could do that. Mm -hmm. And then we saw growth that we had never seen the kind of growth that matters. You know, it wasn't, our church was no longer Sunday morning centric. It was never, I kind of, I sometimes use the word spectacle centric. Like mm -hmm. I think Sunday morning can become very experiential and, and we planted with, with ARC yeah. Which they, they really emphasize the Sunday morning experience. Yeah. And there's a good reason for that, but it, it felt like how much are we playing into consumerism in a way where maybe we're getting people there, but they're not growing. Right. And so we've seen people actually growing in their faith during this time. And I've, I've loved it. I, I felt totally set free because we also planting with ARC meant we had to give our metrics back to ARC periodically and let them know. And the metrics just were dead. Like they didn't matter. They were meaningless. And so I was like, forget the metrics. Let's just do, <laughs> let's just disciple people. So I've, I've actually loved that part of this season. Yeah. It's, I, an, it's an interesting kind of reality um, because the, the small group piece, and this is a philosophical sort of conversation of, are you a church with small groups or are you a church of small groups, right? Mm -hmm. So and, and when I was at Saddleback, we we always took the approach that we were a church of small groups. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we talked a lot about how we had more people in small groups during the week than we did at church on Sunday morning, which was very true. And so yeah. I think, I think, you know, you talking about this clearing the field, Maybe it's because we are sevens. I don't know, but I would absolutely agree with you that this this was a great time and a great opportunity for us to to um, and I think I used the the word the other day in the podcast to dismantle some of these um, spectacle type of mm -hmm. uh, realities that that church is facing. So um, so for you guys, if you've kind of we're not on the fully on the backside of the pandemic, but we've been in a year. Some things have loosened up. Some things have gotten better. We've adjusted well. Have you seen a regression back towards the former? Or are you guys still heavily sort of engaging and being very, very effective in your approach with this um, more discipleship-centric sort of approach to the plant? So we have not started regathering weekly yet. We okay. right now we gather monthly outside. And so gotcha. we've had a really great rhythm of gathering together once a month. And up until it got really cold outside, <laughs> we were actually having a lot of people come. It's hard to know what our church is going to look like once we regather, because there are some people that I have not seen 
in a year. Mm, yeah. And for, for reason, there's, there are people that I know consider our church, their church that I've not seen. They have not come to an, in, an outdoor gathering and they're not in a small group, but I, so I don't know how many people that is. So that's, that's the big wild card is yeah. who is our church yeah. <laughs> like i can the, the great metric is i can tell you this many people are in small groups right now which feels like a much more meaningful number than we have this many butts and seats on yeah. sunday morning yeah. and so i'm i'm really grateful for that but i'm i'm hopeful that we are going to continue to lean into small groups especially because our church is at a size now where we, I can, I cannot be in touch with, we cannot be shepherding everyone. It's just impossible. Right. And so we've been intentionally picking our small group leaders as well. Like our, our door for volunteering is pretty wide open, except for our small group leaders and our worship mm -hmm. team. Everywhere else you can serve almost literally whatever you're doing in life, but that's where we, we get like very, very picky. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I heard, do y'all ever listen to John Tyson? Do you, do you know I know John, John is. We, I've been trying to get him on the show, but I can't ever seem to land him. But I love that dude. I don't think he likes he's, him. Dear John Tyson, please come on the show. <laughs> he's awesome. He Church of the City, really, right? Yes, he yeah. has He has pastored me from afar. From, another for the another last Aussie. Year. He's Aussie, right? Yes. I know. Australia, they're just killing it. But he, I saw him tweet something probably about six months ago where he said that he was realizing how little fruit his sermons bear. Mm. And I thought that is the truth. That is yeah. the truth. I can't disciple them with 45 yeah. minutes on a Sunday morning, but our small groups where they're living together, you know, doing life together, they a hundred percent can. And so I, I feel very liberated from the expectations of Sunday morning, the pressure to perform, to, you know, keep up. I, I feel this season has really liberated me from that. And I think my husband might, might answer a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw John Tyson say something great at, I think it was a Q ideas. He was on the panel there. And the question was, why are these Australian pastors seeing such success in their churches? Mm -hmm. He said, because when we were in Australia, we were every day praying for two hours. Like it was, we were, these mm. things were birthed in prayer long before we got here. And, wow. and he's part of, I, I don't know if he's part of Planet Shakers or Hillsong or comes out of one of those tribes, but he was saying that, that the impact of that came out of time spent in prayer long before they ever got to a pulpit. Um, and I would say the discipleship element's the same, this community element, digging deep with people, because people are just lonely, like yeah. whether the pandemic or not, we were lonely. We yeah. were just, we were just lying about it. So I love that you guys have made the shift. I've been part of an arc model um, and I love some of the things they do. I love how they, they push to get sort of that tipping point capacity mm -hmm. in the church. And yeah. so that, especially so the pastor can live and not work a 40 hour week job and try to plant a church. That's nearly impossible to do. But the, the, the flip of it, what you guys have done and I love so much is we're going to throw back this emphasis on discipleship and groups so that we go not just in, in, in large in number, but we go deeper in, in people. Yeah. And I think that's where the impact's made. And I love that you guys are doing that model. And I spied on you guys a little bit on Bright City. And I love to see that you guys have so many 20-something groups and young mm -hmm. adult groups and sort of that emphasis 
so was that something you set out with to have an emphasis on young adults or was it something that just sort of organically happened as you guys planted it organically happened but part of the reason there are three major universities here right. so we've got duke unc and nc state and then there's some other smaller universities as well so there's just college students everywhere yeah. <laughs> so i think it, it happened for that reason i think some of it too is Ike and I, we are in our late thirties, but we look younger than that. And so I think that also probably just appeals to younger people. And then I grew in my faith the most when I was in college. And so I just have a heart for college students as well, but it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't intentional. And that's where Rob and I've been. I think we, we are not in our late thirties. We're now early forties. Anybody who says we are in our late thirties, we're like, thank you. Bro, I'm, I'm, <laughs> hey. I'm 47. I'm about yeah. early forties. I'm calling early for you. Like, cause we're friends. Um, and I think I think it's great that you guys have a heart bend for college students. So what about Bright City has been attractive to them? I think, well, a number of things. I've been surprised by how many people have come to our church because we do have women leading. Mm. And I, I didn't expect that, especially being in the in the Bible Belt, how ready this area was for that. Yeah. So that's been part of it. I think too, we try and strike a balance. There, there's a phrase that we use. It's not on our website anywhere, but we talk about being thoughtful, thoughtful about faith, passionate about Jesus. And we have been at churches that have kind of swung hard in one direction or, or the other, where we felt like it was either too cerebral or just too caught up in deconstructing, honestly. And then we've also been at churches where it was all about the experience and having this really emotional high. And so we wanted to pull those elements together. And, and I will say too, we were both at the summit for a long time with JD Greer and the summit does this very well also, but we, we wanted to teach people in, in an area where people are smart and they're curious. And a lot of our folks have also been raised in the church, but maybe they're a little bit cynical about it now. And so they're not going to take your word for it just because right. you're the pastor. And so you really have to up your game. You have to think through is what I'm saying honest, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or is this just a spiritual cliche? Uh, because we're in the Bible Belt, we also have a lot of people with church baggage where they've been hurt by the church. And so we want to be really careful with people. And so I think through a lot of how's this going to hit someone who's wrestled with this? How's this going to sound to them? Is this going to be, you know, too neat and tidy for someone with that? And so we, we want to be careful. We want to be curious. We want, we want to be intelligent, but we also, the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we want the heart to be engaged as well. We want our worship to be passionate and, and joyful. And so I, I think really we have, we have created a church that ministers to us <laughs> on our head and our heart level. Yeah. And I think it's, it's reaching people who are looking for something similar. Yeah. That's great. I would imagine there in the triangle, you'd have to be both um, intelligent and empathetic because I mean, you, like you said, there's probably, there's three major universities in a, in a in stone's little throw. Pocket, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you, we've heard, we talked to James Emery White recently. We talked to Derwin Gray. They're in similar settings there in the Carolinas. And they both have said to us that you have to tackle the tough topics from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Like you can't like, especially young people and young adults, they want to tackle the tough things. They want to hear you speak about them. 
that it's not just sort of the spectator event and Jesus loves you and clap your hands. It's like, let's tackle the tough things of scripture. And they've said to both of us, the both of them have said that those were things that drew young people or churches of, of being intelligent with scripture. Um, and obviously you guys have PhDs, so that's going to come across in what, how you guys teach and lead. And so I think that's important. Yeah. Um, we well. definitely want to take time too to get get to the book. I know we're getting really, really close, but uh, your latest book is called Nice. And uh, so mm-hmm. tell us how how is nice not worth what we're supposed to be as believers? <laughs> Don't be nice. That's Don't be nice. Sherry said it. <laughs> Soundbite done. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Those are the ones that get you in trouble. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. No, it's funny you say that because a number of people when I have done interviews have said, you know, when you get on social media and it's a complete dumpster fire, it seems like maybe what we need is people who are nicer. (laughs) And my response to that is we need people who are kinder, not nicer. You know, nicer is the the papering over. It's it's a veneer. But what we need is kindness, which is a fruit of the spirit. You know, niceness and meanness are both two sides of the same coin, which is a lack of spiritual formation. And because I was raised in the South and raised in the church, I know how to be a nice Christian girl. Like I know how to look like a good Christian. I I often say that we are really good at looking good. And so I know how to give you all the right answers, even if underneath I am just withering inside. Mm. And I, I saw that in myself. I see it in so many Christians. And so the very short answer for the book is I wanted to tackle that false formation that has happened in the church and then to look at how do we cultivate something real yeah that's great i like that yeah, like that language that's formation. a great explanation and by the way you are a nice person just like. <laughs> uh, no she's kind she's, she's, kind. Kind. she's a kind person <laughs> awesome well great so obviously as a dookie we have one final question um that we ask everyone on our show we we record here on the campus of the university not quite duke but it is a pretty good campus oh yeah, yeah we're, we're duke, <laughs> nobody's waiting in line for basketball tickets duke than us i mean yeah, it's you know it's, we're second <laughs> uh, but what is one lesson you have learned in college that did not take place in the classroom oh that is a great question besides the tent camping you didn't like yes Hmm. Well, I, I probably alluded to this already, but it's where, it's where I learned that I was the leader Mm. and where I was called to the ministry. And it it was also really where I learned the beauty of the gospel. You know, even though I was raised in the church, I was raised at a wonderful church full of great people, but I really did for whatever reason could not have given you like a clear articulation of the gospel until I got to college and I got involved with FCA. I was really involved with, with fellowship of Christian athletes. And that was when I really fell in love with Jesus and grew by leaps and bounds in my faith. And so, and that's, that's why I, I love college students. Now it's such a, it's a special unique time in a person's life and i i think anything is possible when you're that age yeah that's That's a great answer 
Hey, Sharon, it has been a joy to have you on the show, and uh, we, we know, want you to know how much we appreciate you, your work, your ministry, and uh, what you guys are doing there um, at, at Bright City Church. And uh, thank you so much for, for talking to us. And as yeah. we always like to say here at the Leadership Grip, you got a seat at the table. Thanks for coming on. Aww. Thanks, guys. Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.